0: Glory, and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome as you uh, come every week to the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College, and me, Hugh Hewitt. And in the last many weeks, and for the next couple, we are talking about Winston Churchill at war, and we are talking about it at a very timely time because of where we find ourselves in the world. But Larry Arnn, I want to dive in because yesterday I I spent some time, actually Wednesday, I spent some time speaking with uh, the author of the new book, Days of Fire, and the New York Times correspondent Peter Baker. And George W. Bush had trouble with his generals. He he couldn't quite get it right until the end with David Petraeus. And they fought him, and Rumsfeld fought him, and Rumsfeld had trouble with the generals. How did Churchill deal with his generals? Because obviously Obama's got general problems as well. How did Churchill deal with that as the Battle of Britain raged and as we moved towards Pearl Harbor? Uh,
1: well, he he did three things. He promoted them. He kept them in place. Or he fired them, (laughs) (laughs) and it depended on the ones. But the problem is a big problem, and it's worse in war than it is in other areas. And uh, here's why. War is very intense, and it can threaten the whole life of the state. And a general has specialized knowledge. Also, they can have, in the big cases, high public prestige. And so how do you manage them? They're the ones who know. How do you manage them? And first of all, so so there's that problem, right? It's like if you've got a a nuclear physicist working for you and you're the president of the United States, you don't tell him how to design the bomb. How can you tell the general? On the other hand, you know, during the wars that where Churchill was in one form or another political command, if you add the two together, Britain suffered about two million casualties, yeah, and that means the generals were in charge of that and And so that first principle, the one who knows has got to decide is true, but the second principle is also true, and that is politics is higher than war, and the people who have executive authority in politics are superior to the generals. Churchill put the point this way the distinction between strategy and politics diminishes as the point of view is raised at the summit true politics and strategy are one churchill said that he did oh. he wrote that wow yeah. and and uh, you know he and and another thing to know about churchill was churchill was personally a warrior of real ability that is he he distinguished himself on the battlefield in four wars including the first world war And he rose to the rank of colonel, uh, only because of politics was he not made a general. And if they had made him a general in the First World War, he might not have ever gone back into politics. Um, And he wrote long books about it, and he had a theory about it. And his theory was, uh, it's a logical problem. Back in the days when people fought with clubs and spears with the best will in the world he wrote this in an essay called shall we all commit suicide they'd never manage to kill each other off it just takes too long but when they're fighting with modern weapons the body count can get very high indeed it might include everybody and so wars have to be fought in a way that preserves the republic and in you know in the the first world war Churchill fought hard against the trenches. He didn't want that kind of warfare. He helped to invent the tank to find a way to stop it. And he fostered a long flanking maneuver to the south that came to no good and disgraced him. In part because
0: of the admiral, right?
1: Yeah, well, that story, Churchill's own mistake, because it is true that that Churchill gave the, he was first lord of the admiralty. He was commander of the political head of the British Navy and he gave admiral de Robeck an order to attack again another day they had lost some ships to mines
0: this but is at constantinople refused. this you, you might tell people what the battle is. it's trying to force the straits at constantinople right
1: yeah okay so down da- so so in, in 1914 trenches developed that basically covered much of western europe and there wasn't any way around and the trenches were barbed wire and machine guns and heavy artillery. And to attack across that was disaster, and the body counts were terrible. It's, it may be the most miserable warfare for the soldiers ever fought. And Churchill looked for a way around. And you got to go, to go around is to go around Europe. He looked for a way in the north, up through the Baltic, and he looked away for the south. And that ended up all the way at the east end of the Mediterranean, through the Straits of the Dardanelles that divide Turkey from, from Greece, and into the Black Sea, where you could get behind the German and make contact with their allies, the Tsars, Russia. So that was the plan. That's what they were doing. And they got there, and they had to force those straits. And this admiral refused to attack on the second day. Churchill went to Asquith, the prime minister, and said, order him. Asquith refused. The attack was not made, and we now know that the Germans were out of shells. So, likely enough, it would have
0: succeeded. So, did that did that so color him in World War II that that's why he insisted on being Minister of Defense and the Prime Minister, so that the generals would have to do what he said they had to do. He he blamed himself about the Dardanelles
1: for seeking responsi- taking responsibility for something he didn't have authority over, and he refused to be in that position again for the rest of his life, and that meant in the Second World War war policy was harmonious. I mean there's lots of fights. Churchill was accused of interfering constantly. His own account and the account that I believe is that although he did press them and interfere with them all the time, it's also true that he he didn't order them to do things that they were united in believing wouldn't work.
0: No, but I think he, he almost drove Alan Brooke to kill himself. I mean, I was just, I just finished reading about Alan Brooke's diaries and the man, Alan Brooke was the the, the senior British commander, the number one guy uh, yeah. under, under Churchill and the relationship was close, but he, but the prime minister drove his his <laughs> defense minister almost to, you know, to the grave.
1: Well, you know, to be around Winston Churchill was to be around. A, it's like being too close to a nuclear reactor, right? Keep you up all night. And he, worked incredible hours, and raised questions over and over, and nothing was ever done with, and it was very frustrating. But of course, if you read Alan Brooks' diaries, you discover that well, what he says in the last entry, with some complaints about Churchill in that entry, too, was it's a privilege unique to have ever had a chance to work around such a person.
0: Do you think you could and have put up with it, Larry Arnn? You've studied him so well, that that pace, that... Phenomenal pace. Do you think you could have stood gone with it? Well, I would have been ashamed of myself if I couldn't. Um, That's a different question, though. This is really just about physical capacity.
1: Well, I, yeah, sure. I work I, long hours. I don't think it's I can step on It's easier if you don't. You know, I mean, if you were working for him, he would be carrying the main burden, right? And you, you would be pleasing him. And those guys who worked for him, you know, there are four of them who did closely right through the war, and others who were very close, too. But these four guys who worked for him in his private office, they leave accounts of what it was like. And it was exhausting. And they just thought, and you know, by the way, three of the four had all worked for Neville Chamberlain and were hostile to Churchill when he came in. But what they thought after about a month was, oh, I see how you do it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, you know, but as I also got to the end of, of my reading, Harry Hopkins it basically killed himself working during the war and many people killed themselves working during the FDR wore himself out and killed himself working. during. Not Churchill. Churchill just what, kept going for another 20 years when this thing was done.
1: Yeah, he was, you know, yeah. And he was awesome. And I, I want to say one more thing about the generals and, and, and make the make this point. The point is, on matters of expertise, it, a war is like anything else it's like running a college right there are people of the college who know how to do things I don't know how to do and so they have to say but there has to be a principle of authority that can bring it all together and here's an example Churchill just beat the daylights out of Admiral Pound to get him to, to send some ships to relieve the, the British troops in Egypt directly through the Mediterranean instead of the long way around And Pound wouldn't do it, and he pressed him and pressed him. And after it was over, they went the long way around. And Churchill said, I knew that if he said no in the end, it could not be done. And he knew that I would not make him do it.
0: Well, see, that's the right, appropriate relationship between commander and executive.
1: And you can see why it takes a big man to do that, right? And somebody who really knows a lot. And you don't get a story of Churchill from the people who work for him, by and large, for the moment, for the great overwhelming majority of the cases that think he was arbitrary and dictatorial, although everyone agrees he was difficult.
0: We'll be right back with Dr. Larry arn And this week's Hillsdale Dialogue continues our epic walk through the life of Winston Churchill. We're in the run-up to Pearl Harbor when, after the Battle of Britain, Great Britain was alone, facing still the potential of invasion Hitler, yes, invaded Russia, but the Japanese had not yet brought the United States onto the side of Great Britain. How did Churchill lead? We'll talk about that when we get back to The Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America's Hugh Hewitt. Time for our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College www.hillsdale.edu will bring you in touch with everything that the university offers you, and there are many, many things the colleges put forward for your use, your edification, for your learning. All of these dialogues I've had with Dr. Arner, and one of his colleagues are available at Hugh4Hillsdale.com. All of them, back to the Iliad right up to this, in our extended conversation about Winston Churchill. Flow from the fact that Dr. Arm was himself a participant in the official Churchill biography. Hillsdale is the home for the papers of Sir Martin Gilbert, the official Churchill biographer. And he has a book coming out eventually, although Joel Miller, who tunes in each week to get a broadcast update on how the manuscript progresses, will no doubt be interested to hear. He made no such promise today of being done this week. (laughs) I I, I note that that did not happen.
1: Um, I promised him that I'm day. just last night, I sent him an email and said, I'm days away. And what does days mean? <laughs> it
0: does that, it's a very elastic concept uh, about a very elastic man. Now, Churchill, uh, after the Battle of Britain recedes, the the threat of invasion doesn't. And he really has to, to lead, really, two groups of people. The people below him Great Britain and his allies, Smuts and the Australians and the New Zealanders and the Indians and all that. How does he go about doing that from the island?
1: Well, uh, you know, first of all, with great difficulty. Uh, And, you know, Mackenzie King in Canada, for example, the Prime Minister of Canada, very much resented Churchill and thought he was foolish and blah, blah, blah. And the Prime Minister of Australia didn't think so. And uh, Smuts and Churchill were very close friends. And Churchill took pride in the great fact that there were enormous contributions to the total war effort from the Commonwealth and Empire – And he was very proud. I mean, for example, they made a decision with the United States to fight the European war first. And what does that mean for poor Australia? That's right.
0: That's what I want to get to, because right now he's alone. So he has to keep everything in balance. But then as soon as Japan hits, he has to persuade FDR to go Europe first. And did did part of his management of the allies leading up to Pearl Harbor contribute to his ability to actually get his war grand strategy embraced by Churchill, by FDR, after it occurred?
1: Yeah, well, it, you know, first of all, the facts of the case were what they were, and Europe is close, and and H- Hitler was, you know, bidding fair to conquer it all. And Japan, you know, was soaking up a lot of islands, but it didn't look like it was going to get to the United States, and it wasn't going to knock out any further the main powers in the war. And so it just was hard duty for for Australia and New Zealand, right? Because they were almost invaded. And uh, MacArthur had something to do with stopping that and good luck and also the enormous power of distances. But they, they did do that. And, you know, there were Australian soldiers fighting far away from Australia. And that's a great fact about that country.
0: Now, in, in uh, terms of... of- those those period of months bef- before the United States entered into the war, Russia uh, was attacked and was blind to the approach of Hitler, although Churchill attempted to warn Stalin, did he not? Yeah, well, the, the thing to remember is in 39,
1: uh, Stalin and Hitler made a deal and they were allies and they carved up Poland between them and Russia got Finland. And so Russia was a Soviet Union was a hostile power. And uh and then, you know, Hitler with his venom, he he was always he was always driven by venom, sometimes by strategy but always by venom. He decided that killing those Slavic masses and running them out of Europe and taking all their land was the real object. And so he began to, to prepare a massive assault in the middle of 1941. To against Russia, and he went after him. And Churchill did warn Stalin about that. And the evidence is that Stalin didn't believe it.
0: Now, how, he was, how, he when was, he, was he was not invaded, when he Churchill was foolish, naive, <laughs> naive Stalin. What did he think when when Hitler did not invade England? I've never been able to figure this out. What was Stalin thinking that he was not going to use his army again?
1: Yeah, well, it it uh, you know. It, 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 it was a very formidable thing to do to attack russia and because it's huge and it didn't work in the end and so he 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 probably thought although i don't know what he thought and i don't think it's known what he thought uh he he probably you know cuz he he wasn't doing daily press conferences this stalin um he probably thought with an enemy at his back like that how can he turn and come after us and he surprised him. I mean, there's no question that Stalin was surprised. And, uh, you know, he, he trusted
0: Hitler. <laughs> Churchill wasn't. Churchill. Now, here's an, an interesting comparison. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show on Wednesday, I spoke with Peter Baker about his book Days of Fire. And it's a very well done book for a, a book that's only five years after the conclusion of the presidency of Bush and the vice presidency of Cheney. And the year 2006 and 2007 is so awful. For George W. Bush, there are times when it looks like he's carrying around bricks on his shoulder. People think he may be clinically depressed. He wasn't, in the uh, opinion of Peter Baker. Nevertheless, just a terrible year. And I thought to myself as I was reading that, because it's the war and he's losing his election and he's losing his party and he, various people are telling him he's a loser and the staff are leaving him, The Churchill's 1940 was far worse than anything anyone else has ever really had to go through, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
1: And 41 and half of 42, although it was different in 42. Because if you just think about the timeline of the war, Germany simply has overwhelming power, right? The, the the British Army is a small fraction of the size of the German Army, and the German Air Force was much bigger. And so if you put everything Britain had on the same land mass as everything the Germans had, they would conquered them faster than they conquered Poland, because you know Britain lost all of its heavy equipment when it left Dunkirk. And so from that point of view, the war was simply hopeless, and then they began to bomb London. And then the submarine warfare began, and so not only was it that the cities were being leveled, it's also true that they couldn't guarantee to resupply themselves, and so they were watching on charts month to month while the country choked to death. And and you know the losses were terrible. Plus, in in the early going, let's say through sometime in September 1939 is when Martin Gilbert thinks it it, it receded. There September of 39. 39. Okay. Yeah, in 1940. Okay. Sorry, in 1940, And sometime around September 1940 is when it receded. But there was a political movement to make a peace with Hitler. And there were overtures going back and forth all through that summer while the Battle of Britain was going on. And and uh, I've heard Martin Gilbert say this, and he's written things that are less explicit than this, but indicate the same thing. Um, sometime in the fall, after they just bombed and bombed and bombed, finally everybody just came to the view, that's enough. <laughs> you know, this heck with this guy. You know, we're not going to talk with this guy. And so that came to an end. But then you know the war news was just terrible and and uh, and you know the, they they tried bombing Germany and they tried it in the daytime at first and the losses were just
0: just staggering right and, and he so kept...
1: everything was wrong
0: we come back and we'll talk about how does Churchill get through that very long period of everything going wrong with Dr. Larry Arn. the Hillsdale dialogues are all available at HughForHillsdale.com. for com. Hugh for hillsdale.com stay tuned Thirty four minutes after the hour, Americans, Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back. The subject on the table for this Hillsdale dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, all of which are available at Hugh for Hillsdale dot com or directly from Hillsdale dot edu is that period of time after Dunkirk and before Pearl Harbor, when Winston Churchill stands alone and basically rallies the world to stay against Hitler and props up the Soviet Union after attack, when the. I can't recall the name of the battleship that went down. The Prince of Wales was sunk by Japanese, so it wasn't during this period of time. But he suffered some horrific losses. And, the and Royal Oak. That's it, the Royal Oak. What would he do to rally himself, Larry Arn? Because there is a chapter for everyone to know and, and read.
1: Well, he, he the most telling thing, you know, um, I, I can remember I had studied Churchill for a long time when I began to understand that he was often afraid and i was a young man and i was trying to figure out what courage was and i thought you know he look at him look at him you know look at the pictures of him look at him holding up his v sign listen to those speeches right but in 1940 during the during the, the uh, very early in the premiership he said to john colville i want john colville was one of these private secretaries who illegally thank god for it kept a diary <laughs> and later published and I'm going to interrupt myself. How much time do I have?
0: You have five minutes in this segment. Yeah. He, he, uh,
1: he. These these four guys: Peck, Martin, Colville, and Seal, would play tricks on each other because they worked together for years, right? And and they would write memos ostensibly from Churchill. Oh, I
0: and, didn't know and that. One
1: of them said, and they they could mimic his style exactly. It's very direct and concise, and and. A, Sure, and so Colville gets a memo that says, roughly, it comes to my attention that you have been keeping a diary in violation of the Official Secrets Act. When I return to the office, I need to speak with you about this. And, of course, they put it on his desk. <laughs> oh, he did? <laughs> and, and he's just devastated. And there, the plan is to let him go home and have a bad night. And it gets to, it gets to the end of the day, and they can't stand it anymore, and so they have to tell it right? because <laughs> it's just too cruel, right? Anyway, he kept this diary uh, about Churchill, and and Churchill said to him one day, "There's that prayer from uh, recorded in George Borrow about the siege of Gibraltar by the Spanish against British troops that went on for months, and they nearly starved to death, nearly took it. Find it for me, please." I want the words exactly. And here's the prayer. Uh, Fear not the result, for either thy end will be a majestic and an enviable one, else God will preserve our reign upon the waters. Churchill was saying that prayer to himself. You see? Yeah. He, he, He decided, and you have to understand that Churchill is the last guy to decide this. Churchill is the guy who thinks that the art of statesmanship and generalship is to fight wars as cheaply as possible, preserving the liberal nature of the society. And Churchill decided that circumstances had arisen, that they had to fight to the end, no matter what, because to make a peace with Hitler was to begin to participate in his way of governance and living. Better to die. And he called for that, see. Never in another time in his life did he do that. Uh, talking about nuclear weapons, you know, after the war, he never spoke this way again in his life. And these are the months where, alone in his whole life, that's what he did. And, of course, they are his most memorable speeches in his life.
0: During these, this period, what was Clementine to him and his family? And Randolph was no... No piece of cake, his oldest, uh, his only son. But but what was the family to him?
1: Well, they were great, of course, and he loved his wife very much. And uh, Randolph was a very brave soldier in the Second World War. There are two stories about him. He was wounded in North Africa. And uh, there's a man named William Deacon, not Lance, became Sir William Deacon. And he died three or four years ago, I think. And he was, I never knew him, but Martin Gilbert knew him well and just adored him. Uh, he had been Churchill's research assistant, and Churchill was trying to figure out what was going on in Yugoslavia because there was this, this uh, Catholic monarchist constitutionalist named Mihailovic, and there was Tito the communist. And Mihailovic wasn't fighting very well, they came to suspect, because, and there's reasons not to, the Nazis, when they took a the town, would put up a list of 100 names of citizens, and if there was a, an act of insurrection, they'd shoot them all. Line them up, shoot them. The, the, the man who founded Maglite, Tony Maglica, I met him one time. And he was stood up, a little boy, in front of such a firing squad. And his mother cried and begged, and they released him. Wow. He would have been
0: shot. Okay, come back to what this means, Deacon and Randolph and the family, when we return. Dr. Larry Arnett's The Hillsdale Dialogue. We're talking about Churchill. From Dunkirk to Pearl Harbor, don't go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogues are all available at HughForHillsdale.com. 44 minutes after the hour, American Hugh Hewitt, this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, focusing on that that period after Dunkirk, before Pearl Harbor, when Winston Churchill rallied the great British people to stand alone, actually, against Hitler. Churchill himself, supported by a personal staff, by wonderful generals, and by his family, one of whom, Lord Randolph Churchill, uh, was something of a pain in his, in his father's side most of his life. But you were saying about Yugoslavia and Bill Deacon.
1: Well, Churchill sent—he tried to figure out, because this guy Tito would just fight anyway, right? And he's a communist. We don't like him if, if we're Churchill. So he sends uh, William Deacon and Randolph— and Evelyn Waugh, the author, and they go parachute in and they spend time with Tito. How and unlikely.
0: He said Evelyn Waugh does he Tito, Evelyn and, and and to see Tito? Evelyn Waugh were wounded by the
1: same shell going
0: off. Wow.
1: And and uh and, and they came back and reported this guy's a fighter. And so the Allies recognized Tito, which had consequences for after the war. But what they got was a lot of fighting back there. So his son, you know, was a pain, but his son was a brave man and relied upon by his father, and uh, and his family, you know, his daughters were in the military in in uh, spotters and such as that. My wife's mother was a was a plotter for the R A Royal Air Force, and so they all did service and they all worked. Now, There's it, a touching scene. It's not true. There's no. Uh, Evidence for it I've ever seen, but I love it anyway. There's a really good film about Churchill, and uh, and toward the end, when the war starts, Clemmie looks at him and says, we're going to be old when this is finished. And Churchill got a little tear in his eye and gave her a hug. You know, they were sort of saying goodbye in a way, too.
0: I am. I'm thinking of the picture of him peering through his curtain on his 90th birthday with Clementine, and so she was right, but she was also wrong. They lasted quite a long time thereafter. Uh, okay, so, Aaron, who does he rely on in the period up to to both seduce Franklin Roosevelt and also to prepare the way for the entry of America into the war? Who helps him?
1: Well, he, you know, Churchill has loyal friends, right? And. Of course, the government is a big business, and in wartime, everybody's in terrible stress. So the first thing you have to know is, Churchill was an extremely active dispatcher of business, and the people around him were mostly very cooperative with him, including the labor guys who who were in the coalition with him. So by and large, under the pressure of war, they really got on. And they fought, too, quite a lot and and uh and there was you know terrible disappointments and setbacks too and and you have to understand about Churchill that the British people decided in nineteen forty that they were going to fight this thing through, and that meant they were going to do it with him, and so nobody had prestige as he did, and when it came time, mostly through the vehicle of the House of Commons to inform the nation what's going on in this
0: war, nobody was better at it than Churchill. And how did the king support him? Because, they, you know, well, the Americans listening to this, the English will know this, but Americans won't quite get, many of them, what the job of the king is in a war.
1: Yeah, well, you know, he had this, these two little girls, one of them the Queen of England today, and, uh, and George the Sixth had a very good family. And he and Churchill became very close, and there's a lot of writing back and forth between them. And the King was often deployed to make Churchill behave, slow down, don't go to the front, huh. stuff like that. Huh. And, and you know they had a they had a they had a conversation about the King leaving. I might have said this last time. The king should go, Churchill said. We might get invaded. And the king said, I'll go when you go. And Churchill said, well, good. Then come here to Downing Street. We'll fight here.
0: <laughs> no, you and didn't they, tell that story.
1: Oh, yeah. No, that was a, that's a great story. You know, the king wasn't going. See, if the, if the prime minister wasn't going, the king wasn't
0: going to go. Has, has Elizabeth spoken much about Churchill? Has she given oh, yeah. her testimony and what she recalls? Oh, yeah. Sure, in the way that a monarch would, right? First right. of all,
1: she she dined with him officially, when he was retiring from the premiership, which is an incredible honor, right, to go to the home of a commoner and, in, your, in your regalia and pay an official visit. Then she offered him a dukedom, which is the highest in her power to give. No one has been made one of those outside the royal family for more than 100 years. So then he didn't take that. And it was sort of agreed that he wouldn't take that because he wasn't rich, and how would he afford it? But she wanted the offer to be made, see. And then what she gave him instead was the highest uh, uh, decoration title available to a commoner. She made him a knight of the garter, which, that's the queen's garter, right? And that means a particular defender of the monarch. And she manifested all... You know, Martin Gilbert once, once went and had... Easter weekend at the Queen's place at Windsor. He'd come over to my house. <laughs> and to uh, and, uh, and he got into a conversation with her about him. Because it's just very well known that she adored him, and he adored her. And if you look at pictures of her when she's young, she looks like a lady conqueror. And she's a beautiful woman, and also a tremendous horsewoman. And he just adored her. She captured his heart and he hers. And so Martin Gilbert said, what was it like talking to Churchill, with Churchill? And Martin reported to me that uh, she shook herself a little and said, you know, in my life you don't get enough time to think, but I can remember. And then she talked for about 15 minutes about what that was like. She was, Of course, he was extremely interesting man to talk with. He knew a lot
0: and he was very articulate and he... You know, he did. Like, did he reduce that conversation, Martin Gilberts or Martin Gilbert, to a memoranda? Uh,
1: not that I've read. I, I, I uh, he, he told me about it on the. This was in the '80s when this happened, and uh, I was back in America. And he told me about it a couple times on the phone. And I said, "Well, you have to tell me about it." And he said, "I can't." And I said, "Why not?" And he said, "We have to be
0: together. It's too good." Well, then you should get on a plane and go and see him and get that.
1: Well, he's incapacitated now, Hugh. Oh, I can't. thought
0: he was ill, but not incapacitated. He
1: can't talk. He can't talk. And oh. uh, may not
0: be able to again. Well, then go and see the Queen or something. Doctor. <laughs> I'm serious. Dr. Arn uh, will continue with Pearl Harbor next week and our walk through the life of Winston Churchill. All of these conversations back to the Iliad and forward are available at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. The Hillsdale Dialogues, not to be missed each week to end your week with. Thank you for listening. I'll be right back to conclude this week's Hugh Hewitt Show.